Drew, thank you so much. Pleasure to be able to worship with you. Thank you. And also, it's a privilege to be with you. And there, there are a couple of reasons for that. One is, my wife and I are, we spent the first two years of our marriage in the high desert in Salt Lake City, married in Big Cottonwood Canyon, and we miss it. And so to be back in the high desert is, is just, a, it's just a pleasure. The, the other reason, which is more important, is, is I am gathering with people this evening who are willing to, to give up an evening, and I suspect many of you willing to give up a good part of your day tomorrow to, to think about a very important topic, and a topic that, that I, I certainly have, have, have appreciated how the scripture has spoken so deeply to it. So, to, to be with kindred spirits in the high desert is, is a great joy. So, I am certainly very pleased to be here. Why don't we begin the evening by, by recognizing we want to just take a brief walk first. We have our own home, and it's called the Christian Church, but there are neighbors around us, and, and let's, let's just visit some of the neighbors the, the neighbor we're particularly interested in this evening is the, the mental health conglomerate. Uh, you walk over to your neighbor's house and you see their garden and it is immense. It is just immense. They have, they have offered psychiatric diagnoses over the last 50 years that have become commonplace throughout the world. The conglomerate includes medical establishment, a therapeutic establishment. It includes clinics, certainly throughout the United States. It includes mental health institutions, and I'm sure many of you have benefited from, from them over the years. You, you go visit your neighbor, and it's um, quite an impressive place. You come back to your spot, and, and at least... The area they're identifying, the, the, the things that they're gardening, it's, your garden seems a bit puny in comparison. Now, there, there are a couple things you can do with that. Well, we have plenty of, the thing, plenty of things the scripture has given us, so we, we tend our garden and we're busy doing it. Everybody has their own thing to do and our neighbors have their thing to do, we have our thing to do. That, that actually might work until you or someone you love experiences the kinds of problems that they speak of among your neighbors. Until you or one of your friends, one of your loved ones, has an experience that fits these various diagnoses. Then all of a sudden, the status of your garden becomes very, very important. Suddenly, you, to, if we know anything about psychiatric diagnoses, they are, they are life-dominating experiences. It's not something that just bothers you here and there. It's something that seems to infiltrate all of life. And, and, and to experience something like that, where Scripture is silent, at one point, you, you read First Peter or 2 Peter chapter 1. And you read that the, the scripture and scripture in Christ, we have been given every, everything we need for life and godliness. And you read it and 
You smile and you, you are blessed to recognize everything, this cornucopia of uh, this treasure that we have in Scripture that God has revealed to us. But then you read it again when someone, you're, someone you know or someone you, or, or you yourself have these experiences. You read 2 Peter chapter 1 and it doesn't seem to be speaking with, with great meaning into, into what you struggle with. And your confidence in scripture begins to erode a little bit more and a little bit more. You still come to church and you still sing vigorously with, with, with your brothers and sisters. But scripture just doesn't seem to have that much sway on a day-to-day basis. So, this is an occasion for us to have visited neighbors and, and then come back to Scripture and, and ask Scripture to speak. The, the way that we want to prepare ourselves for Scripture to speak is with one particular question. And the question is this. Who are you? Who, who are we? Uh, I'm, I'm not so interested in, in your ethnic group or your, or your, your family history. Uh, I'm, I'm interested actually in a kind of theological x-ray. What are, the, what, are the, what are the constituent parts of who you are? What are the ingredients? What are the building blocks of who you are? Is as we receive a kind of theological x-ray. We want this x-ray to be able to speak something about the brain and the body, and certainly something about emotions as well. And and here's why that x-ray is important for us to to consider. 62-year-old man, sort of a man's man, a big, strong, uh, vibrant, he's, he, he's in for a, a brief medical procedure. He's going to have surgery the next day. And this, this one hospital, they give him medication the day before just to give him a better night's sleep. They give him an anti-anxiety drug. At, at 5 o'clock in the morning, there's a bit of an alarm that goes out to the medical staff. This, this bear of a man... Is, 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 is decomposing emotionally. He is crying nonstop. And, and nobody can understand why he's crying, and nobody can do anything about it. Seems filled with anxiety. The, the issue is, it seems like it would be obvious. He, he doesn't want, he's a man's man, he doesn't like being out of control. And when you're going under the knife, you can feel a bit out of control, I suspect. But it wasn't that. What seemed to be anxiety over something that could threaten his life was actually the side effects of medication for him. That's all it was. It, it was his brain that was being affected. It wasn't a matter of the heart, necessarily. Another person, a 26-year-old fellow, who, who is an accomplished blame shifter. He lives with his... Yeah, uh, yes, we all are, granted. But he was better than the rest of us. He was really good at it. 
And he lived with his father. I think his mother had passed away years before. And everything was his father's fault. Everything. And it's, you talk to him about blame shifting, and you say not everything's your dad's fault, and, and you, need to, you, know, you need to stop this. And he says, yeah, yeah, I do. And the next time you see him, he's blame shifting as if you'd never even spoken about it. You go through, you go through different scripture again with him. You, you exhort him. You, you speak to him about his pride, his arrogance. And he comes back the same way the next time. There obviously is something wrong with this man's soul before the Lord. You, in your frustration, you have no idea what to say. So you, you read Matthew 7, 3 to 5. I, I don't know why. I probably used other texts before that. And Matthew 7, 3 to 5 is, is why, do you, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye when you have a log in your own eye? First, remove from the log from your own eye so you can see clearly. I, I, read, that, I read that particular passage in frustration, certainly not with any love. And, and he said, his immediate response was, I don't have, I don't have a log in my eye. I have an entire forest in my eye. Well, there's one thing you should know about this man. He was in a serious car accident. He had been in a coma for, for over a month. And one of the things that tends to happen with, with, uh, with brain injuries is, is you lose the ability to reason abstractly and your world becomes very concrete. For example, I was talking to him about blame shifting. Well, blame shifting, you can, it's taking blame and shifting it somewhere else. But the word was just gobbledygook to him. It was some sort of abstract word. He got some idea what I was, I was talking about. But it wasn't, it wasn't clear enough for him to stick. Well, the scripture tends to be spoken very concretely. So he, he, all of a sudden he could see it. He could, he could hear Jesus speaking these things. And he could see the log in his own eye. And he, he laughed over it in the way that there, there is a certain humor in it because of the... the the, the way Jesus is speaking about it. Now, I, I mention these, these two situations because they, at first they seem as though they're soulish biblical matters, but as we dive in a little bit more, they, they're actually matters of their brain. Perhaps soulish matters as well, but, but matters of the brain. So, with that in mind, let's consider three different ways to read these x-rays. By the way, is there, is there a PowerPoint available at all or not? There's just one slide. Okay. Uh, what, I'd like, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to, to visualize three different ways that these x-rays are, are read. The, the first one is basically the way the x-ray is read by the world around you. The question is, who are you? And the world around you, the, the huge garden next door, they, when they see you, they see that you are a physical being. And, and as a physical being, you, that's, that's it. So as a result, it's not surprising that medication and some kind of physical modality, some kinds of physical treatments are going to be most important for you. 
But they also recognize that you're a thinking. Part of what your, what your brain and body does is it thinks. And amazingly, if you think the right thoughts, you can actually affect your neurological composition, the, the way the brain tends to fire. So the brain can affect your thoughts, but your thoughts can even affect your brain. That is, that is one of the x-rays that, that you will encounter. You are a body, that's who you are. You are a thinking body. A, a second possibility is much more common in, 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 in our own circles. Who are you? Put that theological x-ray up and you are, you are three different pieces. You are a body, indeed, that's obvious. But you're also a soul and a spirit. And the question is, what does it mean to be soul and spirit? Well, spirit is, is sort of your spiritual building block, if you will. You want to see your spirit in action, you, you look for obedience or disobedience. Your, your soul is where all the action is. Your soul is, are the emotions of life. Your, your joys, your fears, your, your passions, your dreams, the interesting stuff. It's a particular sector. The, um, the challenge with that particular x-ray is that, is that the sector for the emotions has gotten very big, but the spiritual sector does not speak to it. So... As, as the, as essentially, as the soul part of you gets, gets more and more noticed, you're, it's a finite circle, if you will. And the spiritual part of you is given less and less space. Because, after all, your emotions are the, the things that affect you most day to day. Those are two different possibilities. Let me give you a third. I'd like to like you to envision a circle, if you will. The circle is the body. Everybody who, anybody who, who takes an x-ray of our own composition, they see that we are physical beings. But, but you're not merely a physical being. You are physical and spiritual. You are, you could say you're an embodied soul. You you are a bit of heaven and a bit of earth. Your treasures, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, your treasures in jars of clay, your body being the, the fragile jars of clay. You find this going throughout scripture, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body, but, but can have, no, they have no authority over your soul. Rather, be, be afraid of the one who can sentence both body and soul to hell. Who are you? You, you are indeed physical. But, but by way of the revelation we have from Jesus Christ, this theological x-ray, you are of heaven and earth. You are physical and, and spiritual. So, let's go a little bit further. What, what does that mean? What? Can we say more about this 
spiritual substance, if you will, and in this physical substance. If you've read anything in biblical counseling, you know something about the human heart. That's, that's the goal. That, that, that's, that's where we're always aiming in, in preaching and in our care for one another. So question. You are an embodied soul. The, the word soul, it, when we're looking at that very center, so think about a heart, if you will, that's surrounded by this circle. That heart is... is, is it's so important, scripture has all kinds of different words for it. Heart, soul, spirit, mind, conscience, inner person. When you have a particular interest in somebody, you have a lar- in, in something, you have a larger vocabulary for it. But the question is, 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 is you see that theological x-ray, and you are an embodied soul, what... When do you see that soul in action? What does it look like? As you, as, as, as sort of this theological infrastructure expresses itself, what, what do you see? Well, a few thoughts. One is, when the scripture talks about the heart, there's a kind of depth to it. There's a lot going on. The, the first thing you might notice about your heart is your heart is where things are especially important to you. What's most important to you? What are the things that you love? The heart is a sense, a repository for those things. So as a result, when scripture speaks about the heart, it oftentimes speaks about our emotions. It speaks about our fears. What are fears? Something that we love may be under siege. And we are alarmed. Anger, misery. These are, these are expressions of the human heart. The heart is the place where things are important. And emotions are the way we feel those things that are most important. Let's go a little bit deeper. The, the heart are those things that are most important. But there, is a, there is a moral direction to the heart. The heart is a kind of moral rudder that guides us through life. The heart is is called righteous or unrighteous. The heart is obedient or disobedient. It still carries those things that are most important to us. What is most important to us directs us in moral ways. You dig a little farther and, and, and what you find is that we are people who live before our God. And at the, at the depths of the human heart, the most important question, there, there are all kinds of ways we can put it, are you turned toward your God? Are you turned away from him? Do you love him? Or do you love your own desires? This is at the very center of, of the human heart. Your embodied soul, embodied heart. This next question would be, as physical beings, what, what does that mean? How does your body express itself? Well, your body is, is, that's the way we serve the Lord. That's the way we serve others. That's the way we live in a physical world. But, but you notice your body differently. 
your body is, is never called right or wrong. Your body is instead, it's called strong or weak. One of the passages where you, where you find that is uh, in Gethsemane where, where Jesus is praying and the disciples are not. And remember what he says, the, the spirit is willing, but the body is weak, which authorizes you to sleep in the sermon because, because it's not necessarily disobedience. It's, it's a body that is weak. It's, it's not bad. It's just weak. The one way Scripture puts this together is, is in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and following. It goes something like this. Don't lose heart. Though outwardly, you're wasting away. Assuming you're over 25. <laughs> Outwardly, you're wasting away. Some of us quickly and some of us slowly. Outwardly, you're waking, wasting away. Inwardly, you're being renewed day by day. Your body is, is going to waste away. But, but the beauty is that, and you see it, you see it all over the place. You see saints who have gone through difficult physical things, and you see spirits, you see hearts, you see souls that are thriving in their confidence in, in their God. So that's the x-ray. That's, that's really the, the, the theological equipment that we need to, to begin to reckon with what our neighbors are reckoning with in the mental health movement. Here are the applications of, of this, this particular theology. Number one is the body, it can't make you sin. Isn't that good news? If you're getting the sniffles tonight, it's, it's not going to compel you to sin. The body cannot make you sin. Uh, perhaps there's a corollary to that, which we could say, nor can bodily treatments make you more righteous. They can make you feel better. They can, they can strengthen you physically, but they can't make you more righteous. So that would be the first application of this basic theology. The second application is but. But. But the body can do all kinds of complicated things. And it creates all kinds of challenges. A woman who is on an international flight. And what did she say? There are terrorists on the plane. There are terrorists on the plane. She, well, she rushes down the aisle and she tries to break into the cabin. What I didn't know, I, and perhaps many of you know this, there were, there were people with guns on the plane. <laughs> And there were fire, there were the fire marshals, the air marshals on the plane. And immediately the, the, air, the air marshals rushed her and decided that, that she wasn't armed, so they didn't shoot. She's a Christian, fine gal. She is putting everybody in peril in an international flight by screaming about terrorists in the plane when there were no terrorists in the plane. And she was having a delusion. She was having a delusion. 
I would suggest to you what, what she was experiencing was, was more of a weakness than, than something for which she was morally culpable. In fact, in fact, the, in fact her willingness, she, what she believed was she believed that the plane was at risk. And the question was, how can she love these people on the plane by helping them? And the way to do it is to get the plane down as quickly as possible. How do you get it down as quickly as possible? You yell, terrorists. So, so on one hand, you can say, Here's, what is wrong with this person that she would put so many lives at risk? If you know her heart, you would, which people eventually did, once they... Once they got her off the plane and put her in a psychiatric hospital for three, four days, you recognize it was her expression of love. It was an odd expression of love. It was a confused expression of love, but it was an expression of love. In other words, the body can't make you sin, but you can do really unusual things that, that look sort of bad and... And the body can be what's behind it. The body becomes, becomes your focus a little bit more than, than the human heart. We're having a surprise party for, for one of our pastors. And it was a fairly large church. I'm in a smaller church now, church plant. But, but for weeks, the entire church kept this surprise party under wraps. And then... The, the day of the surprise party, there's a young man who goes out the door and he says, Pastor, good to see you, and I can't wait to see you at the surprise party tonight. <laughs> what do you want to do? You, if, if, you were, if, if you were the one who was arranging the surprise party, you would have wanted to strangle the guy. You, your immediate response would have been to be angry at him because he didn't keep the secret. There seems to be something morally just not quite right about that. Well, here again is a young man who has experienced brain injuries. And, and one of the things that happens with brain injuries, which I think is fairly charming, the things that are on your mind, they come out your mouth. <laughs> which I, I am married to a woman like that, and I have one daughter like that, and I've come to really appreciate it. You don't have to guess what is on their minds. It's, it's always just right there available to you. The body can't make you sin, but it can do some complicated things. Um, perhaps we should be more alert to it. Some of you are familiar with Tourette syndrome. One of the features of Tourette syndrome is typically people curse when they have, when they have the Tourette's twitches. It's typical. Well, cursing, it's, it's speech that is defiled in some ways, degrading speech, and, and clearly it is wrong. Then if you get to know the person a little bit more, you, it, it, it's, it's still complicated, but they're not cursing in the way people curse. People tend to curse when they're mad at somebody, uh, when they're frustrated by a particular occasion. That's not why they're cursing. It just happens to come out of their mouths. And that, that doesn't answer all the questions, but, but we are interested in the intentions of the heart. Near somebody who's not intentional in, in what they're doing. So, it goes something like this. 
with people who are like you, that is, people who have similar abilities to yourself, you don't have to worry about the body that much. You know, you talk about physical problems that somebody has, but, but you just, they, they, they can hear things, they can, they, they can do things in the world just like you. But when somebody is different than you, isn't it true that our first response tends to be, if they have different abilities than us, they're wrong. For example, one of the challenges in our house when our girl, girls were younger was, was I have one daughter who insisted on doing her homework with earphones in, with headphones in, with some sort of music that you could actually hear. It was loud enough you could hear it with, the, with her headphones in. Now that is immoral. It, it, it's, and it's immoral because, because I don't do it. You know, and it's immoral because, because every, every sane person, when they're sitting down to do their homework, they want to have quiet. And here she is, she's, she's going to be listening to this stuff all night, and she's going to, everything, it's just, it's wrong. And then, and then perhaps, then perhaps you, you regain your footing, and you recognize your daughter is an embodied soul, and you ask questions that might have to do with her embodiedness, and a simple question like this. It seems like the craziest thing, you want to listen to things while you're doing homework. Why do you do that? Why do you prefer that? And, and, and as I considered her life, when she would do things that took, took careful attention, she would be in places where there was some commotion. She would do that at school as well. And that's simply what she said. She said, Dad, I don't know what it is, but when I have other kinds of things going on, when I'm listening to other things, I can concentrate better. All right, have at it. You see, it's when people are different than you, you that's when, when this theological x-ray of the embodied soul becomes a little bit more important. And what you will find is the, 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 the better you understand the embodiedness, the strengths and weaknesses of another person, the more patient you will become. So with that in mind, let's, let's fill up this category a little bit more of the body. What does it do? What are some of its peculiarities? Uh, let's, let's try this. Uh, you're here this evening. How did you get here? How did you get here? I'm not talking about the route that you drove. How did you get here? If you're from Los Angeles, it's, that's a huge question. Um, how did you get here? Well, you, you had to hear that there was going to be a conference this weekend. You had to hear about it. And, and you had to remember what you heard. My mother-in-law would not be here tonight because she just spent time with us. And she does not remember very well the things that she hears. So, so you had to remember that there was, there was actually a conference then I suspect you had to do certain things, sign up, register, whatever, whatever it meant. And then, is, is there a child care here? Yes? So you didn't even have to think about child, you didn't even have to think about your kids. You can just drag them along with you and bring them here. Um, but, um, but it did mean you couldn't make any plans for, 
for Friday night and, and Saturday this weekend. So you had to do some sort of multitasking. The, the things that you typically do, you can't do them. And, and then you had to, to come home from work at the right time to get here at 6 o'clock. And, and then you had to leave the house at the right time to be able to come here. And by the way, the ability to judge time is, that's a, that's a strength or a weakness, which <laughs> creates lots of fights on Sunday mornings. Um, my, I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to have to. Um, uh, my wife, the reason I'm going to do it is because my wife is just filled with gifts. And, and she has one weakness. Two, actually. Two. I'll just tell you about it. Maybe I'll tell you tomorrow about the other one. Uh, one is that she doesn't judge time accurately. I can remember when I was younger, there was a show, Groucho Marx, This Is Your Life, or something. I can't remember what it was called. But Groucho Marx, one of the, one of the things in the show is, is, is at the end of the show, somebody would come up, and they had to judge a minute of, of, of time. Meanwhile, Groucho would be talking to them, so they couldn't go 1,001, 1,002. Groucho would be... And it would, it would be the funniest thing because you could tell the show had to end and now it's two minutes and three minutes and four minutes and Groucho is saying in his own inimitable way, you think maybe, you think maybe uh, it's tomorrow morning yet and people would still keep going and going. And, and meanwhile, other people could get it within 10 seconds or so. The ability, some of you have have an ability to judge time. You have an idea what time it is throughout the day. And you can judge, which, is, which demands all kinds of brains, brain abilities. You can have a project, and you can judge how long it's going to take you to do that project. So this brings me to my wife. This, is, this, is, this, is, this used to be fairly typical. Uh, we would be late for church. And it would always be her fault. Uh, and I would feel good about myself and, and blame her. Um, uh, at some point, the Spirit got a hold of me. And I realized this is probably not very helpful for our marriage, for her, or for me. And, and um, so we just began to talk about it. And what, what would happen is, it would be five minutes before we had to leave, and my wife would announce that she was going to take a shower. Now, now, she can do things fairly quickly, but, but not that quickly. Uh, and I'd, I'd say, sure, you got five minutes, and you're going to take a shower and do all these other things in five minutes. See, one of the things I think that happens with my wife, she, she, you know, as time gets shorter, she has more things that she wants to do in that time. Uh, so she's running around doing all kinds of things. Uh, no, five minutes seems like it was a perfect amount of time. And I would say, I don't, you know, I don't think so. I, don't, I just don't think so. And when it wouldn't be, we would, we would talk about it. And it, at some point, we, we suggested that maybe she has a hard time judging. Maybe she's not real strong in judging how time unfolds. And, and so what do you do? One thing you can do is you can blame shift for, for your marriage. Or you can, you can say, well... I'm going to help you with that because I have a watch <laughs> and I have some idea how time unfolds and so we'll talk about it and when, you know, we'll just talk about what are the things you want to get done. So I'm just giving you one example of you, you can judge time because what time did we start tonight? Six? What's that? Drew, you were, you were doing... Five of what? 
5.45. So people were here singing at 5.45. Um, in the 6 o'clock, you were ready to go. I don't think I saw anybody come in after, after 6 o'clock. You, you are amazing. You have, <laughs> you have amazing brains. Um, now, and there, there are other components to that. And the point is, any one of those abilities that were strung together, you're not going to be here on time. So, you know, on, on Sunday, you're going to come to church, and somebody's going to ask you about the conference, and you're going to say, oh, no, I forgot all about it. It's, that's what's going to happen. Um, we are embodied souls, and, and there are times where it's especially helpful to consider what that embodiedness looks like. A couple other ones. My father, when he was married, was talking about marrying another woman. That does not seem like a good thing. We, however, would sort of chuckle about it. Um, my father was dementing, and he was, he was the most pleasant dementing man I have ever met in my entire life. Um, and, and, and just a little sidebar, he, he didn't know who I was. He knew I was somebody, he, like a brother. He didn't have a brother, but, but maybe a brother or somebody he knew well from someplace. So he always looked happy to see me, but at the same time, he was happy to see anybody. <laughs> Whenever I'd visit him, I'd notice that. Um, and he didn't know where he was. He had no idea what the year was. His uh, intellect was probably surpassed significantly by my three-year-old granddaughter. And, and he forgot that he was married. My mother lived in a different, different area, and she too had, was demented. And he didn't remember that he was married. And so when you're not married, you meet somebody in the place where he was living, and you, you consider the possibility of marriage. Now, you know, that's, that's an overt. Well, that's not actually, that's not an easy one. Because there's no question, there would be children. Of, uh, there would be children in a situation like that, that that would be angry at their father, because he's thinking about marrying another person when when he's still married to your mother. But but when you understand something about strengths and weaknesses, it does give you a bit more patience with another person. And so, what do you do with such a thing? You don't do anything. You don't do anything. You can say, Dad. By the way, you're married. You could say that and. He won't know what you're talking about. And if, he, if for some reason there's a moment of clarity, uh, the next moment he won't have clarity. But I'll, I'll tell you what you could do with my dad. You, you speak to him, he's just this ball of confusion. Fun and, and entertaining, but ball of confusion all the same. You could ask him to pray. You could ask him to pray. And when he prayed, you, there was this clarity and... It's, 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 it, you probably felt this. You felt like you were an intruder. He was speaking to the Lord God with affection, with, with a theological richness, and I used to love to hear him pray. The, the outer man wastes away. The inner person can be renewed, even in the midst of that. I used to go to where my father lived, and... and uh, 
and um, we shared the same name. Uh, and they would, say, uh, they, they would say, oh, are you Ed Welch's son? And, and inevitably, somebody who, it was a, it was a kind of um, nursing home, um, he is such a fine, godly man. With the intellect, less than three-year-old. The, the, the beauty of Christ could, could shine especially vividly in him. You're embodied souls. And a bit of heaven and a bit of earth. And we are especially interested in how, the, how Scripture, the Lord himself, has revealed to us the interior of our beings. That in our hearts dwell those things that are most important. Those things that are most important they tend to direct us morally, and they direct us relationally toward the Lord or, or away from him. That tends to be our focus, but occasionally, with those who are different than yourself, you, you consider the body. Let me give you a couple other illustrations. A, a famous evangelist, not that you would know, he's a local evangelist, famous evangelist in our area. I knew the family fairly well. They, they asked if they could meet with me and seemed, seemed, seemed urgent, seemed something powerful was taking place. Their, their father, husband, this local evangelist, seemed like a fine man. He, he'd gone through a few strokes and he didn't have the same competencies that he once did. But one of the things that happened was, was they were not able to bring anybody in the house because any time there was a woman who was brought into the house, he, he would speak these lewd and sexualized comments. He would just, just, just make some sort of statement about who they were sexually and some kind of statement about how he wanted to be involved with them sexually. Now what do you think? The body can't make you sin. Sometimes what the body can do is it can give you an awareness of other people. You know, you have some idea what they're thinking. When you lose your intellect, you don't know as much what they're thinking. But when you know what somebody's thinking, you don't necessarily want them to think bad of you. So consider this as a possible story. Here's a man who, who allowed himself a certain sexual license in his own imaginations. I'm persuaded he never acted on those. I'm persuaded he never said anything to anyone about it. I don't know if he had a history of pornography or not. But one of the things that happens when, when you begin to lose your, your mental abilities is, is the stuff that's on your heart, it comes out. You can't cover it up quite as easily. It demands a certain amount of, in, of intellectual ability to, to cover up who you really are. And no longer could he cover up because he, and it didn't matter to him because he just wasn't aware of what other people were thinking. What you were seeing was, was this man's heart in action and his, uh, his decreasing intellect. It was the occasion for the heart to be seen. You, you're, are you, you with me? What we're doing is we're doing a theological x-ray and we're... To, to be able to engage with the mental health movement, we want to know about the heart and we want to know something about the body and about what the body does. And so we're just taking a brief opportunity this evening to, to just, just amass more observations. You could even look at yourself. What are the things you're good at? 
you know, we can, what, are, what are you talented in? What are you really bad in? That's, which is not a moral comment. It's what are you weak in? That's what we're saying is those are, those are expressions of physical strengths and weaknesses. My, my, my wife's family tells a story about how they would go on Fridays occasionally for ice cream. And it was a huge event for, for this very poor family. They had nickel ice, they, they went on Fridays because they had nickel ice cream cones. There were, they would have eight people jammed into this little Hillman. Hillman is this British car that is the smallest thing, it's, it's smaller than the VW Bug. So they had a Hillman, they were all jammed into this Hillman but they loved it. They didn't mind being together. They didn't mind being all over each other, and they got their ice creams. They hadn't had ice cream for the last week, and, and so, so five of the six kids would devour their ice creams. Meanwhile, the other one would just take a little lick, and as it dripped down, he would lick again. And meanwhile, everybody's done their ice cream, and he still has his. And he creates a ruckus for the family for the rest of the evening. Uh, and now there, there are two things to consider. One is, this is clearly a matter of the heart. What he wanted to do was he just wanted to get at his siblings and make them jealous. But I know my brother-in-law, and I don't think that was really the issue. He, he tends to have a more methodical, sort of self-controlled style of life. Now, there's different versions of self-control. One is a spiritual self-control, but another is that, that, that he, he, he can control his passions. It, it wasn't because he was more spiritual than anybody else. He wanted ice cream just as badly as anybody else in the car did. But he, he liked to be able to move slowly and enjoy his ice cream. He was able to just have passions that wouldn't overtake him. I have friends who struggle with anger. And, and James 4, obviously, speaks about anger. And James 4 is, is, is relevant to them all. But, but for some of them, they are really passionate people. When they feel something, they feel it really deeply, which, is, which in some ways is admirable. The challenge is when they feel things deeply, sometimes it's hard to keep it in boundaries. And, and certainly we can grow in dealing with those kinds of things as, 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 as our hearts grow in dependence on Christ and obedience to him. But you see what I'm saying? You, do, you, do you see that it gives you just a little bit more patience with an angry person at times? Or an angry child? And for those of you who have children, you, I, I had two, ch two children and... And one, she, she was a very self-controlled kid. Her emotions did not fly out of control. And it wasn't because she was more spiritual. It was simply that's how she came out of the womb. The other one was just raw passion, absolutely raw passion. And, and our mission in life, and continues to be to this day, for her to be able to have that passion sort of reined in. To see the goodness of it, but, but to see how it can get a bit reckless as well. There are strengths and weaknesses in, in these two daughters. 
We are talking about the body. And here's, let's end with this. We've gone to our neighbors and, and they've stirred us up to think who are we and we're bodies and souls. They've stirred us up to consider the question, well, what does it mean that we're embodied? And what are the various expressions of those strengths, but especially those weaknesses? Because the more we know of them, the, probably the more patient we'll be, we will be with those who are different than ourselves. But here is what you know. 1 Timothy 4 can identify it. First, Timothy says, Paul says this to Timothy. The, while bodily training is of some value, godliness, spiritual training, is of value in every way. It holds promise in the present life and the life to come. Who are you that, that you have been given revelation from God to see the contours of humanity, that we are truly embodied souls? And, and you certainly care about the, the challenges that the body and a, and a brain that has weaknesses can offer. But you know this, that, that whether your brain is strong or your brain is weak, what, what is most important for every one of us, for every human being, is that we would know Christ. We would draw near as he calls us to draw near. We would know him better. We would love him more. We would love him in a way that the moral, the moral direction of our life is now oriented toward him and his own character. Whether a person is brain damaged, whether a person is bipolar, whether a person has dissociative identity disorder, whether a person has brain cancer, whether a person has muscular dystrophy, these, are, these can be very difficult physical problems. But we are embodied souls and and what we offer to all of them is something that goes deeper. That why, why their body is wasting away and their brain is wasting away in various ways. There can be a renewal of soul. And that renewal of soul has implications for all of eternity. Good to be with you. Let me pray. Father, we, we've gathered together because... Because, you know, we want to think about our neighbors, but, but more, we want, we want you to teach us more and more how do we live wisely in this world. And we want to help those who, who, who have struggles that are sometimes hard to understand. We give them Jesus. We, we, we speak about what we had for devotions. That simple act and things like it. Those are things that are more penetrating than any medication could possibly be. They speak to the human soul, have implications for all of eternity. Thank you, Father. Thank you that you have allowed us to see these realities. In the name of Christ, amen.